I think reality does bite. But I think what I see around me that's really pervasive in our culture, which is what I call magical thinking, a term I have borrowed, is even worse. Let's look at reality. Let's bring you some content that is meaningful, truthful, as much as we don't want to face it and address these issues because there is a solution for everything. There's no magic. Everything is hard work, but there is a solution. And we're hoping that this show brings you some of that content so you can make better, well-informed decisions and have an understanding of how addiction fits into our social milieu and what we can all do about it together as a culture, as a nation, as a society. We are all very comfortable with the paradigm of addiction or the model of addiction as a medical disease, uh, but I think we can go one step further. That paradigm works perfectly well. It answers a lot of questions. We can evaluate the situation and make predictions and use medications as such. But I think there's another paradigm and model that uh, is really important. And I think as time goes by, this is going to become more a topic of conversation and social discourse. And I feel that addiction is a manifestation of our social and cultural pathology broadly. That being the case, uh, what can we do in that way to make evaluation, a formal analysis, and eventually prediction for treatment of that symptom and their original social pathology? This show is Reality Bites with Dr. B. This is kind of the direction we're going to go and explore. We have Julie here, who has been a patient of mine for the last couple of years. And within the greater context of addiction as a symptom of a social pathology that should be looked at much more closely. And by the way, sociologists, psychologists, social theorists uh, are starting to look at this and try to form and trying to start to formalize words like despair and how do we address it. To that end, I am interested in the individual narrative of those suffering from substance abuse. Uh, and I think that will, over time, draw a lot out. Uh, there's a wide spectrum of different people across our culture and social landscape that suffer from this. And I think these narratives, if we start to look at them, it will draw up individual patterns that we can look at and really point to and say, you know what, from a social perspective, there's issues in our culture that we can address that we can eventually use to treat addiction. We have Julie here today. Again, she's been a patient of mine for a couple of years. Uh, I know her really well. I know her family really well. And uh, what I really wanna do today is start from her narrative all the way from when she was born. Julie has, uh, and Julie's not her real name. We're using that for to identity protection and to uh, give her some privacy. Hi, Julie, how are Hi. you? Hi, Dr. B. Uh, I've known Julie for about two years now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, two years. Julie, tell me how, uh, tell the audience how, what your age is right I'm now. I'm 31. 31 years mm -hmm. old, okay. And uh, how should we start this? Uh, we're in California. Were you born in California? Uh, yeah, I was born in California in um, Apple Valley. And um, I lived with my mom, my dad, and two older sisters in like Wrightwood for the first seven years of my life. My uh, dad and mom got divorced when I was three years old. Um, I would say my childhood 
you know, I think I was too young to know, like, the effects of, you know, that the divorce would have on me later. But, you know, my childhood was it was a happy one. I had a lot of love um, from my mom. And, you know, my dad was kind of emotionally distant a lot of my life. Uh, my mom was emotionally there for me. But um, maybe a little bit too much of a best friend growing up. Your mother? Yeah, I'd say, yeah. When you say your dad was emotionally distant, is this something you can tell us on retrospect, or is it something you remember realizing, and how early did you realize that? Um, let's see. I think I really started to, to recognize that as probably when I started going through puberty, and I would try and, you know, share, like, emotional, you know, things with him, and he was just kind of answer me in sort of a textbook way. You know, he's a very, he's a really smart man. He's you know, a PhD and stuff, but he's just very, you know, by the book and not, not really an emotional response that I'd ever get from him. And I think that that kind of affected me in, in some ways. Do you remember the divorce at three? No, I don't. Not, mm -hmm. not at all? No, I don't remember them being together at all. Okay, all yeah. right. Uh, do you remember any uh, domestic strife? Between them? At home? Yeah, uh, yeah, definitely. They did not like each other. They wouldn't even go in the same room for really long. I mean, up until my 20s, they wouldn't even be in the same room together. Um, they talk, talked badly about each other, especially my mom towards my dad, which gave me a lot of preconceived notions about him that I, you know, later found out weren't necessarily true. Um, I think it's probably still the reason for some of my resentment is just that feeling I had of about him as a as a child um my you know with my sisters it was a pretty good relationship especially with the middle sister but you know the older one was like really perfect she always has been her whole life in in every sense of the word <laughs> um and i think that was a lot growing up you know kind of feeling i guess in her shadow pretty much my whole life now you are uh, both your parents are uh College educated and even graduate yeah. degrees, correct? Right. Uh, yeah, my mom's a nurse. Nurse, yeah. yeah. Um, any substance abuse on either side of the no. family? No. I mean, my gran well, my grandpas um, were both World War II vets, so uh -huh. they, they struggled both with alcoholism. Um, one of them died of complications due to that, and then the other one died old, I think, in his car. Okay. Yeah. And so they split up at three, and who did you go with? My mom. Tell me about life after that. Um, it was, I mean, I, I remember for the most part a pretty happy childhood, um, up until I was about 11, you know, do you want me to say yeah, yeah, no, uh, you know, feel free, and if there's something you don't want to talk about, just say, you know, I don't want to talk about it, yeah. everything, so whatever you're comfortable with, okay. uh, you know, I just really want to get a sense of you and your, okay. your placement in the world and how you see yourself and right. eventually how substance abuse came into play, but yeah, go right ahead. Okay, so, um, yeah, I, I consider my childhood to have been a happy one. Um, I had loving, supportive parents for the most part. Um, and I, I think, you know, things kind of turned uh, bad for me, I guess, <laughs> when I was 11 and I was molested by my stepbrother. Um, and, you know, yeah, I, I think, you know, there was a part, part of me that died a little bit. Um, you know, I was never really the same after that. And I didn't tell anybody, and that was the biggest 
uh, I mean, you know, I don't want to call it a mistake because I was 11, but like, I had I told somebody maybe I could have gotten therapy, but I didn't tell anybody for year, maybe eight years, nine years after. This was, uh, and I'm sorry to hear that, mm -hmm. and I already know uh, quite a bit of the story, but this was a uh, stepbrother, your mom's uh, husband after right. this year. Mm -hmm. Was there any issues before that? Not at all, huh? Um, he, with him? Yes. Or, well, anybody. Uh, no, not really. Um, he was lived with his mom, so he didn't really live with us. He was coming to visit his dad, and you know, um, he yeah, yeah. Did you tell your mother at all? Because I know you. Not, okay. Uh, eight years later. Tell me how. Can you describe in any way, to the extent that you're comfortable, when you said things went bad after that? Well, expound mm -hmm. on that. What do you mean by that? Um, well, about how you viewed yourself, right. how you viewed the world, sure. your sense of trust, your sense of security right. in your environment. Uh, and I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, mm -hmm. but I want, if I can, to the extent you're comfortable, if I can just draw out the impact and uh, the, how profound the, that, that may have been for sure. you. Yeah, it was extremely profound for my life. It, um, you know, my trust in in people was definitely especially men males you know really changed a lot after that i didn't really you know feel comfortable being around um males at at first and then you know after a couple years i kind of went into a sort of hypersexual mode especially when i got into high school um when i was like 14 you know I, come high school i was kind of the, the school slut you know because i i would sleep around with people and you know that's just kind of how um I think and then which which continued like a shame that I felt in myself I think that's the the biggest thing that that happened is that I felt shame a lot of shame after that and um you know I would do actions that just perpetuated that shame this event occurred at 11 mm -hmm. it was not uh, propelled by you in any way mm -hmm. uh you didn't share it with anybody mm -hmm. Uh, if I'm going to understand it, I would say you had a really difficult time interpreting what that event, whole event was. Right. And somehow you internalized it into shame, mm -hmm. which a couple of years later uh, you uh, manifested in hypersexual activity. And I think for some folks, if I know, if I understand correctly, if I recall correctly, they become uh, very hyposexual mm -hmm. or under reserve. Or in a couple of years, and you're saying as early as 13, 14, yeah, 14 it sort of manifested into this hypersexual activity. Right. Uh, what was your relationship with him after that? Were you, were you distant, reserved, fearful? Uh, I don't remember seeing him for years after that, maybe like six years. So, yeah, it was just when he stayed with us for that weekend, and then I, I didn't see him for a long time. Um, my stepdad... I was reserved around him when I'd been really, really close with him before that. And yeah, he was, you know, closer actually at the time than my own father. And then I kind of, um, it, disintegrated. It, yeah, it disintegrated and it never really got back after that. Did he wonder why? Was it really obvious? I don't know. I don't think it was obvious to anybody. I think I did a pretty good job so you, of hiding you, it. You hid everything. Yeah, yeah. So it was almost, uh, I, you know, existential lie in some ways, and that right. you know, yeah, I'm not going to present what I'm really right. feeling to the world around yeah. me, especially those that are closest to me, right. and should protect me. What about relationship with mom? Was there any effect on that that she didn't understand? I, I don't think that she noticed. You know, um, I think I did a really good job of living my lie and letting what happened affect 
me and how I felt towards people and you know I, I tried I, I tried to take full responsibility for it and let you know not let it affect other people yeah and just kind of take it all on and my, myself what about schoolwork or any extracurricular did that suffer after yeah, that yeah it did tell me a little I, bit about I tell mean, us about whatever you feel like telling us about that I mean, I didn't, um, well, I... Because you're a really smart girl. I yeah. know you're a smart girl. Thank you. <laughs> and when I, in fact, first met her, when she came, I'm going to take a little side trip here. When I first met her, she came uh, into my office, uh, and, you know, uh, this is a substance abuse medical office, and, you know, it was obviously it's heroin. I just asked her, I said, uh, I said, uh, are you here for heroin? I mean, you look like a college swimmer. And, uh, you know, she's such a gracious, wonderful, kind-hearted young lady, and... And I was, uh, and this was two, three years ago now, mm -hmm. huh? Maybe even three About years three, ago. About three, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, so there was an impact on your extracurricular and school activities. Oh, huh? yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I, um, I mean, I'd say pretty much my whole life after that, I kind of had trouble, like, I mean, you know, yeah. See, I don't want to say, like, it's like my whole life is because of that one moment, but it's how it snowballed after that yes. that led to, like, the rest of my life, you know, is where I kind of, you know, I allowed myself to get distracted by guys and by, you know, um, the things that I was getting into to maybe cover up, you know, the shame I felt about my actions. And, you know, I, I've never really been able to stick to finishing things, you know, and that's been kind of the... Um, the model, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the theme. So in high school, you started to have this sort of different social interaction. Mm -hmm. Go from there for us. What happened from there? What, your grades were suffering. Yeah. And then you told me, I, I think you dropped out. I did. I, yes, I did. I ended up dropping out as a sophomore for a, uh, a couple reasons. For one, I just couldn't. I've always been kind of um, had a head in the clouds, I guess, you know, but it from there, you know, once I reached, you know, middle school, high school, I just, I had no care at all for school, you know, and um, it was just, I, I saw it, you know, purely as a social thing, and I don't even remember paying attention at all in my classes, and um, I think, you know, I dropped out as a sophomore because I had a really bad reputation and it was I was getting bullied by some of the girls there for sleeping with you know their boyfriends and it was yeah not really a good a good thing for that's me it, that's yeah. tough um so from that 11 to 13 14 15 mm -hmm. I'm going to stop and let's talk or discuss another aspect of all this when did it had any substance abuse started yet or use, um, or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, was yeah. Was there alcohol, yes, a lot was there of, pills, cocaine, any? Yeah, well, I mean, I'd say the first time I used was uh, 12, well, drank. I got, and the first time I drank, I got hammered, like hammered, um, blackout drunk. And, you know, that's, I started using on a regular basis. What age did it start after this event? Like 15, well, the first time I drank was after this event, but the first, you know, I started smoking weed on a really regular basis when I was about 14. Um, 14 to 15, well, 14 to 19, really. I smoked probably every, almost every day and um, smoked weed. And, um, you know, I was really experimental. If there was a drug in front of me, I would try it. You know, cocaine, um, mushrooms, ecstasy. Opiates? Nine, uh, yeah, actually, yeah, uh, pills. I got hit by a car when I was 16 walking to my house, and I... Uh, broke my tibia, yeah. or cracked my tibia, and um, 
I was prescribed a lot of pain meds, and that was my first taste for nar- Narcos, is what I got. What age? Uh, 16. Yeah. And they uh, gave me a lot. Yeah. So, tell me, I'm going to recap it, within a couple years after that event, not mm-hmm. only there was social sort of mayhem and discourse in your yeah. life, there was all the internal turmoil that you said, but the substances started, mm-hmm. and it included anything and everything without judgment on that. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, but the one thing that I noticed really like fit like a glove was opiates. It, yeah. After the tibia. Right. Um. Yeah. I. You know, as soon as I took them, they just like, you know, the best way to describe it is it just made everything okay. You know, I didn't feel any pain anymore emotionally and physically, and I was just I felt like I could be you know happy and bubbly and you know I didn't have to pretend so hard, and it was just came naturally and everything was okay. This is an interesting phenomenon where you get with opiates. Um, you hear this a lot from a lot of different people. We know opiates are affiliated with what we call a euphoric effect, right? Getting high and whatever you want to call it. But really, many people you talk to over and over again, they describe whether it's feeling normal for the first time in their life. And I think saying it takes away the pain is too much of a description because it just simply puts you where we're supposed to be as humans, which is at ease in our world, Mm -hmm. right? And however you came to that place where there's no ease, the opiate sort of puts you at ease. And that is the deadly draw. Um, So this was about in high school, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah. Or when you well, when right you, when I dropped out. What, what, were you, what were you doing when you and what what was your relationship with your mother by then, your father by then, and what were you doing if you dropped out? Um, okay, well actually, uh, that's actually what led to the dropout was that I was when I broke my um, when I fractured my tibia, they said I didn't have to go to school for a couple months, and I just never went back. Basically, you know, um, yeah, and my dad was. You know, I think I lied to my dad. I didn't tell him. My mom um, was kind of at the point where she couldn't really control me, um, though she tried. And, you know, she kind of just let me at that point do what I was going to do. I think that was really her only option. I Why? Understand. Why do you say that was her only option? I mean, maybe it wasn't, but... <laughs> Why do you think that? I mean, you said it, and it might have just... I'm just... I'm not... Uh, Pinning you, or right. uh, I'm just curious why that is the thought that uh, you think you put it back against the wall. Yeah, I do. I think I was a wild child. I think that I was gonna do what I was gonna do, and it was, you know, I mean, maybe there could have been somebody, you know, who could have had better control over me. But she's not. She's a really kind-hearted, she you is. know, yeah, sweet lady who's, who's, you know, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest. Is is easy to take advantage of, you sure. know, and I use that to my. Um, I used it. I manipulated her. And what were you doing uh, when you weren't going to school? And tell us how. What was the next major evolution in your life circumstances? Um. So let's see. I was sixteen. I was dating a twenty-seven-year-old, um, and I dated him for three years till I was nineteen. Um, and you know, I I didn't really get hooked on any. Um, he was a coke dealer, and but he didn't like you know. Yeah, so I did coke every once in a while. I didn't get addicted to that. I didn't really have a way of getting opiates, so I didn't, you know, I didn't do that. But I was smoking weed every day and doing hallucinogens whenever I could get them. Um, I broke up with this guy 
when I was 19, I moved in with a girlfriend of mine, um, like a female friend, and um, I started stripping at that point because, you know, I found out I could make a lot of money and it was just, you know, it seemed like a natural thing to me, I guess, because I had never really given much, you know, um, care to being uh, conservative with my body or my, you know, uh, sexuality. So it was an easy, natural thing for me to do where I made a whole lot of money. And so I did it. And, um, you know, six months after that, I found somebody who, you know, sold heroin and, you know, this was at the age of 19, 20 is when I tried. Yeah. 20 is when like so, right around my 20. So birthday. from 16 to 19, you were dating this guy. Mm -hmm. I was, you were still living at home. Uh, sort of, sort of with him. He was horribly abusive to me, like cheated on me a lot and yeah. And what was your relationship with mom like? Um, I think it was okay. Um, you know, I, I, it was okay as long as I could go out and do whatever I wanted to do. You know, I was a brat. Yeah. So 16 to 19. With this guy who's uh, 11 years older than you, right. abusive, he moved in with a girlfriend 19, started stripping, right. and at 20 you found heroin. Mm -hmm. And uh, tell us about that. I mean, that I mean was Norco's times, you know, 100. So it's like, that basically... Did, did you smoke or inject? I smoked it. I didn't inject for, you know, years later, and but I have never gotten away from that addiction ever since I tried it. You know, it's either... I've been, you know, on heroin or, you know, the, the times that I've been able to maintain, you know, a clean time is, you know, I've had a couple years at one point and, you know, right now I've had a few months and that's, you know, thankful to, to Suboxone and Sublocade right now. Yeah, we're going to talk about those. Yeah. Um, but, um, I mean, it's been 10 years of my life, 11 years, but it's um, when did meth come in or any other stimulants? Meth came in at about 24, I want to oh. say. What were you doing from 20 to 24? Unless any significant things there. You got away from the abusive guys. Got away from the abusive guys. You were um, stripping. What stripping. were you thinking? What was the plan in life? What, what was mom saying? Tell me some of these things where, you know, someone on that, you know, we, I, just, I kind of understand it. Mm -hmm. I, I see that kind of like, <clears throat> there's no, there's, it's just basically driven by the emotional status of right. the moment. Sure, uh, exactly. Uh, and you're, and tell me if I'm wrong. You're, you know, essentially as the Chinese say, it's chasing the dragon, and there's no such thing as a dragon. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, but explain to me. Try to relate what was going on in your head. What what day that day to day thing, and what were you hoping to achieve? I, you know, I think that. Um... I was kind of living for the moment at the time. I don't I don't think that there was so much of a plan for the future, though my dad has always been really about education sure. and has always instilled that very deeply very deeply in us to be, you know, an something that's important. So I stayed in school. Um I I had gone on to like community college yeah. and yeah, started doing that on, you know, a regular basis. I was, you know, every semester and um you know, I, I kept that as a goal of mine, but I was never really able to stick with anything, you know, and I, I was in community college for like five years. I got into, you know, uh, university three times, but, you know, I didn't go and, you know, none of 
of the three times I actually followed through and, uh, you know, completed what I needed to complete in order to, you know, uh, fulfill the requirements of, you know, getting in in the next semester. I remember and, one of the times it was Cal State, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah right, <clears throat> right. I, all, all of the times were, yeah. Um, and so, you know, I just, I mean, that was kind of just a constant theme. I would get to this place in my life where it's like, okay, things are going to start changing around. I can get out of what I'm doing and go on to what maybe I'm meant to, to be. And I would just, uh, I would, I would ruin it. You know, I would do something in my action to hold myself back to make sure that I didn't get to that. Self-sabotage? Self-sabotage. Every time? Yes. That's, that's a, the theme <clears throat> of my life thus far. <laughs> From 24 on, so now we have heroin involved. Right. We have poly and meth involved. Is, uh, and uh, it's intravenous at this point at times? Um, I, yeah, probably. I think that didn't really go until I was about 26. I had a couple of years of sobriety between 24 and 26. It was a really, really good time in my life. I was on low-dose uh, long-term maintenance of Suboxone. I think it was like taking two milligrams a day or something. Um, and then, you know, yeah, it happened again, and then it was going full-on, like, intravenous. What was the event that made that relapse? I met, I, it's always the same thing. That I met a guy. A I guy. met some, yeah, a-hole guy that was you know, not good for my life, and I would run off with them, and yet again, self-sabotage through these guys. Do you know why? I don't know why. I want to know if you know why. Can you no. shed some insight for me? <laughs> I mean, I, no, I, I don't really know why. I, I think, I'm sure it all has something to do with the way uh, in, in my early life, how, you know, I looked at men you know, this like distrusting. Uh, I don't know. I honestly don't know. I don't. <laughs> so when you run into these guys, yeah. Okay. So you know that the little thing they always say: the definition of insanity is doing the right. same thing and getting the same result. <laughs> yeah. You know, let's say we walk out of here and you meet one of these guys. <clears throat> At some point, we get tired, or we should be this way. Certainly, I have things in my life, and I'm not putting any kind of criticism on you, but I just yeah. want to know what happened. At some point, we get tired when we do that thing that doesn't produce results and, in mm -hmm. fact, produces negative results. All those in your 20s, mm -hmm. you never felt that? Or where you could just walk away from it and say, I'm done, something in your uh, cerebral cortex just clicking and saying, this does not produce healthy results. Right. I think that what I really became addicted to was always feeling good. I just wanted to do things that made me feel good. And despite the fact that these guys weren't good for my life, they made me feel good. And they produced an excitement. And, you know, um, mixed with the drugs, it was a euphoria that was uh, hard to get away from, you know. But I've seen you suffer the consequences oh, of that, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, we know there's been... You know, issues with law, issues right. with money, sure. issues with homelessness. Right. You have so much potential in education. Right. And that doesn't deter? I mean, it does. I mean, I think uh, we're getting there. Yeah, we're going to get to right. where you are right now. <laughs> yeah. And I think you're doing amazing. I've always right. thought you do amazing. But, yeah. but you know, in those years, that just... It didn't, no. I mean, I, I think that it, it, it did. There was always, you know, my logical mind that knew what I was doing was wrong and this, that this was not the right person for me and this wasn't the right, you know, 
trajectory I wanted my life to go in. But despite that, I was impulsive and I wanted to go to the easier, um, you know, feel good way. And yeah. If you would give us a quick synopsis from 24, 26 to now, and then let's talk about now. <laughs> yeah, I want okay. to know where your mind is at now, where, where your thoughts at, and where we're looking for in the future. Because I'm very proud of you, and I Thank think you. that's a, a wonderful part of the story to tell where we're at. And then really talk about the long-term sequelae of this and what I, what I think, because uh, I, I will give you my definition of hope. Right. But tell us a little bit about that. So, um, yeah, so, so between 26 and, uh, 30, I had, you know, it got worse, got much worse than it, you know, I ever could have imagined. I had about two jail stints. Um, this guy that I met that broke off the two years of sobriety was, you know, ended up trafficking drugs and getting into a federal case. I married him, by the way, <laughs> just to make it oh, yeah. a bad things worse. Um, I married him during that time, and he was trafficking drugs, um, got a federal case, and, you know, I got a gun charge with him, his gun. Um, and, yeah, it, I was on three years of high-control felony probation. I messed up from that probation, went back to jail, and, um, you know, I'm off probation now, and I don't know. It's, yeah. <laughs> and then I think the present is, I guess. The prison. It got worse, yeah. 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 <laughs> um, and it's been constant again, uh, yeah. trying to stay clean for a couple months. The poly substance with the methamphetamines and heroin, uh -huh. different guys and stuff. Right. But you know, uh, let's talk a little bit about where we're at now. Uh, I think you've been doing amazing. Mm -hmm. You've always done amazing, and I, and I'm going to define addiction in the way it should be approached. Uh, because I think you're a wonderful example of it. But tell us about now. Tell us about what's going on. Tell us about your feelings, what you're doing, uh, uh, your personal life, and uh, your ambitions, and, and, and what, what I can, well, we'll get into that, but go ahead. Right. So, so I mean, I just to rewind a little bit, I met Dr. B a couple of years ago, a few years ago, and it was really uh, been a blessing to my life. He's always, like, been there for me ever since I've met him and has been kind of like a hope I've had, I guess, of, you know, um, he's just, he's helps me a lot. And, um, so when I went to jail this last time, uh, he, him and my mom were in contact or you and my mom were in contact yes. and, um, you know, made kind of the executive decision that when I got out of jail immediately, I would be getting the sublocate shot, which is such a subutex shot. And, um, that, that would just be happening immediately. And um, that's what happened. I got out of jail. I got the shot. And it's, I mean, it's been... Uh, Three months? Four yeah, months? Yeah, this will be my fourth one coming oh, up great. soon. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's been amazing. It's, like I was telling you in the lobby, it's kind of like, it feels like that, you know, whatever made me a heroin addict switched off. You know, I don't... It, it's amazing. So one of the things we did uh, with uh, Julie here is uh, Suboxone works great for her, but again, she's, I, I guess, I'm going to say her, 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 her disease, and I'm, I'm really hesitant to call that, but whatever it is, this thing that we're dealing with is so bad where her frontal cortex, which is the executive part of her brain, has so much control over her decision making. Mm -hmm. And her problem is she just decides not to take the medication. And if she doesn't take it, 
even though that medication should be taking away withdrawals, cravings, all of that stuff, you know, she makes that executive decision not to take it and then she gets in trouble. So with the reason we made this decision with Supplicate, and Supplicate is basically a shot of Suboxone, that's the company that puts it out, is that it's good for a month, okay? So she, so we decided to take the choice out of it for her, of course, if she agreed to, the, to it, not, you know, we didn't force her and chain her down. And she was very down with that. And since then, I'm happy. I'm, I'm uh, not surprised because I knew she can do it. And uh, she has had very, very good progress mm -hmm. in the last few months. Yeah. We have tiny little ups and downs with different issues, but she has been doing well. Mm -hmm. uh, tell us. Tell us about how well you're doing and tell us about... Uh, tell you yeah. give me some, and um, I'll give you some feedback. Tell us what's been going on and why so, you're doing so well. You're saying the switch got turned off. Yeah. And uh, what else are you doing? I mean, it's like I, I feel like I did back when, you know, after like having a year and a half of sobriety last time, you know, it's like I wake up every day and I feel happy and I feel content in my life, you know, that feeling I've always wanted. Um, and I've, um, I'm able to just kind of live like a good, happy, normal life where I work out a lot. Um, I'm planning on going to nursing school pretty soon. Um, I'm applying to nursing school and uh, trying to finish my education. Um, I've got, you know, plans and goals for the future. I have, you know, my relationships with my family has been, is on the road to being, you know, mended. And it's like, I, this is the most hope I felt in a really long time because I feel like it's like I can't make these, I've been given like my life and I messed it up. Like I need to like take the, the responsibility out of my hands and just medical science is what's going to fix me. You know what I mean? And I think that, I feel like that's what's happening. And I'm really grateful. To some extent. Medical, yeah. so I'm going to put it differently. I'm going to say okay. medical science is assisting you to put responsibility back in your hand. Right. That's all. We're just, uh, you know, I think there, it's a little bit, of, just like, uh, as you know, I use a cane. Right. And so uh, I'm not putting uh, where I want to go in the cane's hand. Right. I'm using the cane to get to where I want to go. Okay. Uh, and I'm going to say this to you. Uh uh, yes, me and your mom are kind of tough and we take control. In fact, the last couple of weeks, uh, I get upset at because she doesn't do the little check-ins we have. But I feel good because her mom's not calling me. Right. So I know everything's okay. Uh, that being said, the goal is to get you to a place where you're completely autonomous right. and reliable in that way. Right. And this is where the idea, let's go back to the disease model it's a chronic relapsing remitting disease and I'm going to use an example here to make the point of why this is important. Initially, you don't know if you have diabetes. It gets worse, it gets worse, you get sicker, you get sicker, you get sicker and then boom, you end up in the ICU with certain conditions that are manifestations of severe diabetes and you're almost dead. You get taken care of. You come out of the ICU. Now you start very intensive medical care which someone else is in control, right? They actually tell you what you're supposed to eat, what you're supposed to do for exercise, how you're supposed to take your medication. And over a certain period of time, the intensity of care that the doctor or the medical team does gets less. And your medication management, your disease management, your health management goes back into your own hands. And you're managing this all from home, and you see me or the doctor for your diabetes maybe once every three, four, five, six months, 
And when you have a small issue, you don't wait until you end up in the ICU again. You immediately give me a call and come see me. And that model is a wonderful way to look at substance abuse and addiction. So we never ever, in fact, my whole goal is to empower right. my patients mm -hmm. and eventually to get society to look at it in that way. Right. Uh, so that's our goal. And keep in mind, being on medication allows those pathways in your as you develop new memories and new habits mm -hmm. in everything you do. Uh, you know, uh, you, me and you met on time today. You, you were wonderful about it. You sh show up to your classes. I think mm -hmm. you're doing some work on the side right mm -hmm. now, uh, which is great. You're yeah. getting along fine with mom. Right. And the goal is to build habits that are new memories. Right. And these really translate into physical changes in your nervous system. Right. That being said, that's at the physical level, but I'm really interested in the social level. You know, some events in this world, in your case, have brought us to here, I believe. Mm -hmm. I truly believe that, okay? Mm -hmm. And let me ask you, are we addressing those in any way? Um, I have a therapist that I meet with on a regular basis. We meet on a weekly basis. Um, it's been it's been going really well with her. Um, I feel like I've, you know, I feel like I've done a lot of work on, as far as, Absolutely. you know, my, my sexual um, uh, issues and, yeah, I think that I, I have, you know, I don't treat myself in the same way that I used to. I treat myself with more respect and um, love. I, I try to, you know, treat myself with love, and it's something I'm working on, but I think I've gotten a lot better at it. Um, I, I'm getting better at protecting myself, I think, and yeah. not, not a, a, abusing myself. Yeah. <clears throat> and uh, I think it's important to kind of look at this and uh, really realize and realize with uh, hope, not with discontent or sadness, that we don't need to have an end point to this. Right. And there may be no end to this. And that's not a bad thing. Right. That is, in, it's just growth and development right. and addressing dysfunction and a plan to do this lifelong. Right. And remember right. the diabetes patients, we want to make it so he's got no yeah. ICU admissions. Right. And that's okay. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've already kind of come to that conclusion that I'm like, if I have to be on this medication for the rest of my life, that's fine. You know, I mean, it's, I, I, I mean, I'm not even looking at any sort of like end point in that because it's, that's what, this is the disease I have, you know, it, it's. The medication and uh, the psychosocial, the behavioral therapy you're right, getting. Right, all of that, yes. And re, uh, in a, really rediscovering yourself as a right. human being. Right, And, uh. What is the problems with uh, the social milieu that we're operating in with substance abuse and addiction? Uh, number one, for the most part, a good chunk of the industry and social and cultural attitudes have such a misunderstanding of this issue, okay? You know, when you send someone to detox, 30 days detox, and whatever you're paying, whether your insurance is paying or you're paying 60, there's no such thing. There's mm -hmm. so much behind this issue that all that is is acute care management of withdrawals and addressing the fundamental issues. So, and then the other uh, uh, sort of paradigm that there's so much social controversy and uh, it's really, a, <laughs> it's almost dysphoric, but the, you know, the idea that this is your responsibility. Well, I'm going to beg to differ and I'm going to, argue that as we go through life stories like Julie's and we look at these narratives, 
we're going to start to see patterns that evolve, patterns of despair, patterns of loneliness, patterns of existential issues that translate into all kinds of things like depression, anxiety, substance abuse. And those are patterns very unique to our society and our culture and other ones as well too, but ours as well. And until we address those and until we are comfortable with as a society of embracing this disease and enabling all of the folks that suffer from it to get somewhere without having punishment. I can tell you right now, uh, I don't care what the issue was, but to put a federal charge on somebody like Julie, we're not really helping her. We're impeding her progress. But I think as a society, if we start looking at these markers and realizing that there is something we can do socially and in terms of our public policy, our health policy, we would be much further. Uh, before the show, I was using an example with Julie here and uh, talking about, look, there are certain societies where actually cocaine comes from and in the Indies and South America and so forth, they chew coca leaves, okay? In this society, if you open a textbook, I'm going to say to you, cocaine is one of the most addictive substances and it's a taboo. Uh, here's the thing. The guys in South America, the producers of the plant, the folks that it's they use it within their cultural context, I don't think you can call them addicts. They may have physiological dependence, but I got pretty severe physiological dependence on my coffee, okay? But it's not destroying my life, okay? So this is even more evidence for the fact that this can be described as a manifestation of some social pathology. And little by little, I'm going to start hinting at that, but I think it's important that we embrace people like Julie with the proper harm reduction medical care, which is very possible and done across the planet, and uh, open up ways and explore ways where we can uh, address this issue. And here's where hope comes in, and truly medical science of a chronic disease. Uh, they're sort of sisters. You don't give up. Right. right? Yes. You don't give up. Your clinician shouldn't give up. Right. Your family shouldn't give up. Right. And the system shouldn't give up. Because we will make progress and we will impact a lot of lives for the better. Absolutely. Uh, I, I want to really thank you for uh, doing this with us yeah, today. I think sharing this story, uh, uh, hopefully it impacts a lot of people that sees this. They gain a new insight both on the individual narrative of this, this horrendous disease. And it's, you know, they find whether it's compassion whether they find science, whether they find some sort of new understanding of what it is to treat this, uh, I'm hoping for something better tomorrow. And I personally have a lot of hope for you. Thank you. And uh, it's it's been a it's been a sheer joy uh, uh, being your clinician the last couple of years. Thank you, Doctor B. Thank you for having me.